Greetings from Latter-day Media, presenting our dear friend and epic historian on Joseph Smith and church history, Brother Kay Godfrey. This is Podcast 21, The Passport to Heaven, Part 4. The year is 1844. Welcome back. Today's uh, podcast is uh, The Passport to Heaven, Part 4. And the year it will be talking about again is 1844. This is uh, our 21st podcast in the Following the Footsteps of Joseph series. On May the 8th, 1844, the prophet found himself in court again, as usual. He was uh, tried on a complaint from Francis Higby. Uh, the damages Francis was seeking was $5,000, and there was no explanation as to what the charges were at the time. At the conclusion of the trial, the trial judge said the following. He said, The court is convinced that this suit was instituted through malice, private pique, and corruption, and ought not to be countenanced. And it is ordered by the court that the said Francis M. Higby pay the court cost, as usual. Now, this particular slide is interesting. This is a slide depicting what was said by Brigham Young on July the 11th, 1852. And it was part of a speech in the Salt Lake City Tabernacle. Uh, Brigham Young said the following, I know for myself that Joseph Smith was subject to 48 lawsuits, and most of them I witnessed with my own eyes. But not one action could ever be made to bear against him. No law or constitutional right did he ever violate. He was innocent and virtuous. He kept the law of the country and lived above it. Out of 48 lawsuits, and I was with him for most of them, not one charge could be substantiated against him. Just part of the life of a prophet. Plan on the lawsuits. Now, the next day, a court-martial was held, and this court-martial was for Major General Wilson Law for ungentlemanly and unofficer-like conduct in the uh, seduction of a parentless young girl. She was trying to seduce this young girl. The charge was sustained, and Wilson Law was cashiered meaning he was removed from the Nauvoo Legion. Uh, Court-martial was then held for Robert D. Foster, Surgeon General, for unbecoming an off- and unofficer-like conduct as well. The charge was also sustained, and Robert Foster was cashiered and removed. Okay, I'd like to read to you this slide. This is a signature piece. This is a, uh, a letter that I own that is addressed to Charles C. Rich, um, signed by, of course, Joseph Smith. And it has a lot to do with this issue of uh, cashiering out of the Nauvoo Legion and for all intents and purposes excommunicating uh, certain men uh, from the church. And in this particular case, it has to do with uh, Wilson Law, who we've just discussed. City of Nauvoo, headquarters Nauvoo Legion, April 29, 1844. And it's addressed to Major General Charles C. Ridge. Sir, you have been appointed as one of the officers to constitute a court-martial, which meets on February the 9th of May, 1844, for the trial of Major General Wilson Law for unbecoming conduct. In virtue of this notice, you will therefore attend at 9 a.m. of that day to sit in said court-martial in my office in Nauvoo, and it's signed by Joseph Smith, Lieutenant General, Nauvoo Legion. So that's kind of a, a, a nice, nice piece to have in my possession as uh, we deal with the apostates involved at this particular time. 
On May the 17th, a state convention was held in Nauvoo. General Joseph Smith was nominated as a candidate for President of the United States, Sidney Rigdon of Pennsylvania as Vice President. It was resolved that a national convention would be held in Baltimore on Saturday, July the 13th. And of course, with Joseph's death, that's, that's not going to happen. On May 18th, the final steps were taken to rid the church of the apostates. Francis M. Higby, Charles Ivan, Austin Cowles were all excommunicated for apostasy. Joseph continued to be harassed on trumped-up charges. Francis Higby took his case against Joseph to Carthage in, effort, in an effort to have him summoned there. But Joseph was not going to ever leave the uh, friendly confines of, uh, of Nauvoo. Mid-May, Joseph was focused on two things evading arresting officers and his political campaign. Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, Lyman White, and about a hundred other elders left Nauvoo on political missions to the east in an effort to promote the cause of Joseph's presidency. On May 23rd in Carthage, William Loss swore out a complaint on adultery and polygamy against the prophet. Francis Higby also swore before a grand jury that Joseph had received stolen property. And Dr. Robert Foster had sworn a charge of perjury against Joseph relative to a case involving a man by the name of Simpson. Carthage had now become a melting pot for bringing all kinds of charges up against the leadership of the church. Police were put on guard in the city. The outlaw Joseph H. Jackson was seen lurking around Nauvoo. He had threatened to take the prophet's life if he had a chance. The High Council of Nauvoo published in The Neighbor the affidavits of four young women who, women who testified that Chauncey Higby brought about their ruin by deceit in representing that Joseph Smith taught that promiscuous sexual relations were not a sin when they were kept secret. On Monday, May 27th, Joseph decided to go to Carthage and face the indictments drawn up against him and confront his enemies. Joseph took over 20 close friends as bodyguards. Surprisingly, Charles Foster overtook the party a few miles from Carthage and engaged Joseph in a repentant conversation. Upon arrival in Carthage, Charles privately informed Joseph that there was a conspiracy against his life. Well, this was not new news. The outlaw Joseph Jackson was spotted in Carthage, and he was watched closely by the brethren the entire time they were there. Had there not been a show of force by those who supported Joseph, certainly an incident would have happened on the trip to Carthage. Well, no trial was commenced. Material witnesses for the prosecution were absent, and so Joseph went home, and as usual, the rains followed. The last 30 days, the weather had been very, very uncomfortable. Many were sick. Emma was ill and had been for nearly a month. On June 6th, the prophet alerted the saints not to use their paper currency. Too much of it had been forged. The bank in Nauvoo had been broken into and several hundred thousand dollars of unsigned currency had been taken and forged. Forgery was a common practice in the Nauvoo area, especially because of the many forms of currency they were accepting. After all, their converts were coming from England and from everywhere. On June the 7th, the first and only edition of the Nauvoo Expositor was published. It was edited by Sylvester Emmons, a non-member, and it consisted of 1,000 copies. Its pages contained bombastic lies and demonic inferences. It brought the entire city up in arms.
The city council deliberated for two days on how to deal with the expositor. On June 10th, after 14 hours of mature deliberation, the city council passed an ordinance and declared the Nauvoo expositor a nuisance and instructed the mayor to destroy the press. John P. Green, the city marshal, was then ordered by Mayor Joseph Smith to destroy the press with the assistance, if necessary, of the Nauvoo Legion. Marshal Green demanded the keys to the building from Francis Higby. He refused, and the door was kicked in. By 8 p.m., the press, the type, the printed paper, and fixtures had been removed to the street that would be Mulholland Drive and destroyed. Charles Foster immediately contacted Thomas Sharp of the Warsaw Signal newspaper. I have to read to you his letter. It's really somewhat entertaining. Warsaw, Illinois, June the 11th, 1844. The time is come! Exclamation mark. Tuesday, the 11th of June, 1844. Mr. Sharp. I hasten to inform you of the unparalleled outrage perpetuated upon our rights and interests by the ruthless, lawless, ruffian band of Mormon mobocrats at the dictum of the unprincipled wretch Joe Smith. We were privately informed that the city council, which had been in extra session for two days past, had enacted an ordinance in relation to libels, providing that anything that had been published or anything that might be published tending to disparage the character of the officers of the city should be regarded as lawless. They also declared the Nauvoo Expositor a nuisance and directed the police of the city to proceed immediately to the office of the Expositor and destroy the press and also the materials by throwing them into the street. If any resistance were made, the officers were directed to demolish the building and property of all who were concerned in the publishing of said paper, and also take all into custody who might refuse to obey the authorities of the city. Accordingly, a company consisting of some 200 men armed and equipped with muskets, swords, pistols, bowie knives, and sludge hammers, assisted by a crowd of several hundred minions who volunteered their services on the occasion, marched to the building and broke the door down with a sludge hammer and commenced the work of destruction. They tumbled the press and the materials into the street and set fire to them and demolished the machinery with sludge hammer and injured the building very materially. We made no resistance, but looked on and felt revenge. But leave it to the public to avenge the climax of insult and injury. Charles Foster, June the 11th, 1844. So you can imagine what Thomas Sharp was about to do once he received this particular letter from uh, Charles Foster. Newspapers in the nearby towns erupted with the news of the destruction of the press, even though Illinois had experienced 20 similar destructions of printing presses over the previous 20 years without hardly a notice. Thomas C. Sharp of the Warsaw Signal said, and we quote, We hold ourselves at all time in readiness to cooperate with our fellow citizens to exterminate, utterly exterminate, the wicked and abominable Mormon leaders. He continued, War and extermination is inevitable. Citizens arise, one and all. Can you stand by and suffer such infernal devils? To rob men of their property and rights without avenging them. We have no time for comment. Every man will make his own, and let it be made with powder and ball. 
The Mormon haters on both sides of the Mississippi sensed a great opportunity to take care of the Mormons once and for all. Governor Ford was pressured to take Joseph into custody. On June 12th, Joseph and 17 others, namely the city council, were arrested by David Betsworth on a writ issued by Francis Higby in Carthage on charges of causing a riot and the destruction of property. This writ said he had to appear before a justice in the county. Joseph said he would appear before a Nauvoo judge. This infuriated the sheriff of Carthage. Nevertheless, Joseph appeared before Nauvoo Municipal Court, and as did the other members of the city council. After listening to all the arguments, Joseph and the city council were honorably discharged, and this suit was determined to be malicious in intent, and Francis Higby was ordered to pay the cost of the suit. <laughs> Pete and repeat. On the evening of June the 13th, the prophet related a really interesting dream that he had recently had. I will quote, Wherein my guardian angel was walking with me when we spied two snakes locked together in battle. The angel told me they were the Higbies and Fosters, locked together that they had no power to hurt me. Later I found myself walking alone in the prairie when the laws overtook me and tied up my hands and threw me into a pit. While attempting to escape, I heard Wilson Law cry for help. He was being attacked by ferocious beasts. I said, I cannot help you. You have put me in a pit. I looked the other way and saw William Law being poisoned by a coiled snake and crying for help. I said, I am unable to help you. You have put me in a pit. I was then freed by my angel. An ever-increasing number of mobsters continued to gather at Carthage and Warsaw, drafting various resolutions against Joseph and the saints. Ammunition and arms arrived at Carthage from Missouri in preparation for a conflict. The people living in Lima, an Isaac Morley settlement, were confronted by Levi Williams by the mob and their weapons demanded. The prophet told them, quote, when they gave up their arms, to give up their lives with them as dearly as possible. On June the 14th, Joseph wrote to Governor Ford and explained the facts concerning the removal of the expositor. On Sunday, June 16th, Joseph preached a strong sermon on the plurality of gods. This subject was being used by the conspirators to show Joseph was a fallen prophet. After the meeting, the prophet expressed the feelings that all should be ready to defend the city, but to keep cool and make no disturbances. He also sent delegates out to the surrounding cities to show that peace prevailed in Nauvoo. This particular slide shows you where Nauvoo is, and then these hub cities surrounding Nauvoo. This is the way Joseph Smith uh, settled the area, was with the hub of a wheel and then the spokes going out. This same concept would be used by uh, Brigham Young when he, when he settled the Salt Lake and, and Utah Territory. And they were sent as ambassadors of peace. Joseph received some advice from Judge Jesse B. Thomas to go outside of Nauvoo and be judged relative to the expositor affair. If he was acquitted, this would allay the, some of the excitement and answer the law, perhaps calm things down a little bit. On June the 17th, Joseph and the city council then allowed themselves to be arrested per the advice of Judge Jesse Thomas. They were tried before Justice Daniel H. Wells. He was not a member of the church. And after a lengthy examination, 
they were all discharged. Joseph continued to receive letters from outlying communities of impending attacks from the mob. His counsel was the same, hold your ground and defend yourself unless retreating to Nauvoo is necessary. Brother Stephen Markham came before Joseph and told him that he had information to indicate that an imminent attack on Nauvoo was coming. Joseph immediately called out the Nauvoo Legion and placed them under the control of John P. Green. John P. Green was the Nauvoo City Marshal. Joseph's personal guard and staff were called and put on alert. On Tuesday, June 18th, at 1.45 in the afternoon, the prophet declared the city of Nauvoo under martial law. At 2 p.m., Joseph, in full-dress uniform, delivered his last public sermon on a platform near the mansion house to the Nauvoo Legion. He said, and I quote, I have unleashed my sword with a firm and unalterable determination that this people shall have their legal rights and be protected from mob rule. God has tried you. You are a good people. Therefore I love you with all my heart. And greater love hath no man than that, that he should lay down his life for his friends. You have stood by me in my hour of trouble, and I am willing to sacrifice my life for your preservation. At this time, the prophet received by messenger numerous reports of threats on his life, some of which had taken place earlier but had been foiled because of the precautions that were now in place. Apparently, the governor was not interested in helping the saints or the mob at this time. In fact, the mob tried to get his audience a couple of times and was unsuccessful, and this caused them to say that Governor Ford was as big a scoundrel as Joe Smith. Or was he? Or was he? Was there some rhyme and reason why Ford didn't come at this time? On June the 19th, the prophet ordered picket guards on all roads leading out of the city and an inner guard posted in all streets and alleys. All powder and lead was secured in the city. All arms were distributed to those able to fight. For the for the best information from the best information learned by the prophet, there were about 200 mobsters that had gathered at Carthage, <clears throat> about 200 that had gathered in Warsaw, and another 200 at Rocky Run. And these folks had come from Missouri. So you got Missourians and Illinoisans likewise uh, in the mob. The mob was continuing to threaten the outlying communities unless they joined with them in their assault on Nauvoo. Brother Alan T. Waite, Hiram B. Mount, John Cunningham, Isaac Morley, Gardner Snow, John Edmiston, Edmund Durfee, Solomon Hancock, William Garner, John Lofton, Obadiah Bowen, and Avaya Tippetts all signed affidavits that they were threatened with death if they did not join the mob. These brave saints lived some distance out of Nauvoo. These and many other sworn testimonies of impending invasions were sent to John Tyler, President of the United States. We referred to Edmund Durfee as one of those individuals that signed these affidavits. Although this story is after Joseph's death, I'd like to share this story uh, with you at this time. I had the opportunity to work with the Durfee family in attempting to acquire permission from the church to put a new headstone in the Pioneer Cemetery in, uh, in Nauvoo in recognition and honor and tribute of this man, Edmund Durfee. And we were successful ultimately in doing that. Uh, his story is sad. Let me share it with you. 
On March the 12th, 1843, the Lima branch of the church was organized at Yale, Rome, Illinois. Isaac Morley was sustained as president. Edmund Durfee was appointed to the High Council. On September the 10th, 1845, Armed Illinois and Missouri ruffians on horseback rode to the home of Edmund Durfee and ordered him and his family outside. They then set fire to his home and his barn and his outbuildings. The mob of 100 to 200 men then went on doing the same thing to most of the buildings and homes in the town. <clears throat> Brigham Young was informed and rushed with a large team of men to rescue the homeless families. He took them to Nauvoo for protection and care. Edmund and the others had not harvested all their crops at Yale Rome, and an agreement was reached with the mob which allowed the men to return and harvest their grain in November. Edmund and the other men returned to harvest their crops. One evening, as the group was housed at the Solomon Hancock home, someone yelled fire. Looking out the window, the men saw a haystack in front of the yard on fire. As the men were frantically trying to douse the flames, five gunshots were heard. In the confusion that followed, one saint lay dead on the ground, shot through the neck and chest. It was Edmund Durfee. It was later learned that one of the mob had boasted on a bed of a gallon of whiskey that he could kill him on the first shot. It was also learned that this group was led by Levi Williams of the Warsaw Militia, that same Levi Williams who will stand trial for the murder of Joseph and Hiram. I am pleased to have been uh, able to play a small part in this tribute marker being put in the Pioneer Cemetery in honor of Edmund Durfee. On June 20th, Joseph sent a letter to Brigham Young requesting that he and the other uh, members of the Quorum of Twelve return to Nauvoo as quickly as possible. He said, The excitement in the city is great indeed. Return without delay. And then Joseph later that day made a prophecy that, quote, no gun would be fired by the saints during this fuss. Joseph at this time also tried to persuade his brother Hiram to leave with his family and go to Cincinnati. Hiram's response, Joseph, I can't leave you. On June 21st, Governor Ford finally decided it was time to make a showing in Carthage and perhaps try to stem the tide of civil dis disturbances. He requested a representative group from uh, Nauvoo come and talk to him about what had been going on. Lucian Woodworth, Dr. John M. Bernheisel, and John Taylor were asked by the city council to go and represent Nauvoo. The group carried uh, many sworn statements about the conduct of the mob, as well as a letter to the governor asking him to come to Nauvoo and investigate further. Well, it seems the representatives of Nauvoo were given no chance whatsoever to explain their position, but were, were harassed on every front and rudely treated. The governor was surrounded by the Laws, the Fosters, the Higbees, Joseph Jackson and his cronies, and others. Apparently, Governor Ford had made up his mind before the prophet's representatives ever even arrived. On June 22nd, Joseph received a communication from the governor charging the prophet with abuse of power in the destruction of the printing press, instigating martial law, and the illegal use of the municipal courts. He requested Joseph to submit to arrest and be tried at Carthage. He said, and I quote, I will guarantee the safety of all such persons as may be brought to this place from Nauvoo, either for trial or as witnesses for the accused. 
Well, in answer to Governor Ford's letter, Joseph pleaded to have him come to Nauvoo and hear the rest of the story. Joseph said, We dare not come. You cannot control the mob, for our lives would be in danger, and we are guilty of no crime. Later that night, the prophet met with the group and reviewed the governor's letter. Joseph commented, There is no mercy here. Hiram, what shall we do? All at once, Joseph's countenance brightened, and he said, quote, The way is open. It is clear to my mind what we do. All they want is Hiram and myself. Then tell everybody to go about their business and not to collect in groups, but to scatter about. There is no doubt that they will come here to search for us. Let them search. They will not harm you or your property, and not even a hair of your head. We will cross the river tonight and go away to the west. Shortly after coming to this conclusion, the prophet made this last statement recorded in his personal journal, and I quote, I told Stephen Markham that if I and Hiram were ever taken again, we should be massacred, or I was not a prophet of God. At 9 p.m., Joseph and Hiram left their tearful families and with Willard Richards and Oren Porter Rockwell headed to the Mississippi. They borrowed Aaron Johnson's little skiff. Oren rode the skiff, which leaked badly, by the way, and required Joseph, Hiram, and Willard to use their boots to bail water out to prevent it from sinking. They reached the Iowa side about midnight and told Oren to return to Nauvoo and bring back horses the next day and be ready to start for the Rocky Mountains. Early the next morning, June 23rd, a posse arrived in Nauvoo to arrest Joseph. Not finding him, they returned to Carthage. In the meantime, the brethren were readying themselves at the home of William Jordan for a horseback ride west. At one o'clock in the afternoon, Emma sent Oren Porter Rockwell and Reynolds Cahoon back to Joseph with a letter to try and entreat him to return. Reynolds found the brethren packing and informed Joseph that the troops were not going to leave Nauvoo until he returned, and he reminded Joseph of the governor's promise for protection. While Reynolds Cahoon and Lorenzo Wasson and Hiram Kimball indirectly accused Joseph of abandoning his flock, to this Joseph replied, If my life is of no value to my friends, it is of none to myself. He then turned to Rockwell and asked, what shall I do? I love Rockwell's reply. You're the oldest, and you ought to know the best. And as you make your bed, I will lie with you. What a tremendous friend Oren Porter Rockwell was to the prophet Joseph. He then turned and asked the same question to Hiram. His response was, let us go back and give ourselves up and see the thing out. Joseph then studied the thing a moment and said, if you go back, I will with you but we shall be butchered. Hiram then said, No, no, let us go back and put our trust in the Lord, and we will not be harmed. Well, as great a man as Hiram was, there could only be one prophet speaking the will of the Lord, and he had spoken. Joseph then wrote a letter to Governor Ford telling him he would surrender on the morrow, requesting a posse perhaps to accompany him to Carthage. Well, the governor refused to send a posse to escort him or to protect him in his route. On the 24th of June at 6.15 in the morning, Joseph and a group of over 30 started for Carthage. Joseph paused at the temple and remarked, This is the loveliest place, and these are the best people under heaven. Little do they know the trials that await them. 
The company called upon Judge Daniel H. Wells as they went out of town, a good friend of the Mormons. Joseph said, Squire Wells, I wish you to cherish my memory and not think me the worst man in the world either. At 9.50 in the morning, the group was met four miles outside of Carthage at the home of Albert Fellows by Captain Dunn of the Illinois Militia. He and his 60 mounted militia were headed to Nauvoo to take possession of the arms of the Nauvoo Legion. Dunn requested that Joseph and his company return to Nauvoo with him to assist in the collection of arms. It was while at the fellow's farm that Joseph said, I am going like a lamb to the slaughter, but I am calm as a summer's morn. Joseph then sent two letters, one to Governor Ford explaining his delay and the other to Major General Dunham, of the Nauvoo Legion, ordering him to comply strictly with the order issued by Governor Ford for them to give up their arms. Joseph arrived back in Nauvoo at 2.15 in the afternoon. By 6 p.m., all the Legion's arms had been collected at the Masonic Hall. Joseph took the opportunity to ride home twice to bid Emma and his children a final farewell. Joseph counseled Emma emphatically to raise our children in the Lord. The company of fifteen then rode out of town. As Joseph passed his farm, he paused. When asked by some of the company why he was delaying the trip, he said, and I quote, If some of you had got such a farm and knew you would not ever see it again, you would want to take a good look at it for the last time. At the fellow's farm outside of Carthage, the group again was met by Captain Dunn, who was returning with the arms from Nauvoo. He then escorted them to Carthage at 11.55 in the evening. The company went immediately to the Hamilton Inn, amidst the devilish cries of the Carthage Gray Militia. Governor Ford calmed them down by promising to parade the prophet the following morning in front of the troops. The next morning, June 25th, Joseph and the others surrendered themselves to Constable David Bettitsworth on the riot charge and the destruction of the expositor. Joseph's defense counsel was H.T. Reed and James W. Wood. The brethren were surprised when Joseph and Hiram were arrested a second time at 8 a.m. in the morning on a writ by Augustine Spencer before the Mormon hater judge Robert R. Smith. Okay, I need to redo that that okay. that slide. The brethren were surprised when Joseph and Hiram were arrested a second time at 8 a.m. on a writ issued by Augustine Spencer. Now this writ was pre presented before the Mormon hater judge Robert R. Smith. I didn't like that again. Okay, one last time. The brethren were surprised when Joseph and Hiram were arrested a second time on a writ issued by Augustine Spencer. The writ was presented before the Mormon hater judge, Robert R. Smith. This time for treason. Treason against the state of Illinois for putting the city of Nauvoo under martial law and calling out the Nauvoo Legion. At 9.53 a.m., Joseph and Hiram and a number of the other brethren were paraded in front of the troops. They were introduced about 20 times as General Joseph and Hiram Smith. 
when they were introduced to the Carthage Greys, the militants threw their hats into the air and threatened to introduce themselves in a different manner and drew their swords. About this time, the Warsaw troops entered Carthage to participate likewise in the insulting. Joseph returned to the Hamilton house and wrote a letter to Emma, telling her he thought that perhaps the governor would be able to keep peace and that the law would prevail. He also sent a letter to Orm Porter Rockwell, Do not come to Carthage or you will be taken prisoner. Okay, we're going to conclude our podcast now and our final and concluding podcast of this series of following the footsteps of Joseph will be next time. It'll be part five of a passport to heaven and it will the subject matter of course is going to be Joseph and all of the Carthage jail experience. At the conclusion of that podcast next time we meet um, I'm going to do a series of special podcasts. I'm going to do a a podcast on the Carthage jail conspiracy. I think it's important that we understand uh, the nature of what was happening. Uh, I also want to do a podcast on the burial of the bodies of Joseph and Hiram. There's a lot of mystery shrouded in that. I'd like to do that likewise. So we've got uh, a few more podcasts, but we'll look forward to part five of A Passport to Heaven uh, next time we meet. Thank you very much for joining me, and I hope these podcasts are helping you with your study of the Doctrine and Covenants. This Come Follow Me video series is a bonus resource to enhance your appreciation of the Prophet Joseph Smith with little-known facts and research about American and church history. Thank you for listening today and for sharing this ComeFollowMe2021.com website. We sure appreciate those who have been contributing on our Patreon page under Latter-day Media. We'll have a link in the show notes, and we would love to invite more to help support this work. To contact Kay, email him at footstepsofjoseph at gmail.com.